Our God and our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, a smaller group than we often are, knowing that many of our people are homesick, and we know that even on a given week, there are many of us who are suffering from physical afflictions, and Lord, we ask that you would have your hand of healing on both those who are sick this week and those who are suffering from chronic ailments that have caused them no end of physical difficulty. We just ask that you would be with them, giving them strength, and bringing them back to proper health. And in the meantime, while they are suffering from whatever affliction it might be, we just ask that they would have their full trust be found in you, that they would be reminded not to have their, have their faith and their trust in their own physical well-being or anything else, but that each of us would have our, our total trust cast upon you. Lord, we thank you for those among us who serve on a day-to-day basis. We think of our, our elders and our deacons, as well as the many others who volunteer in so many different ministries in the church. And we pray that each one of those would be blessed for the blessing that they have been to, to your church and to the community in which we work. And we pray that the various ministries of this church would continue to bring your glory into every corner of Elk Point and the Lakeland and to the people of Elk Point Baptist Church. As we worship you here this morning, we just ask that you would guide and direct our hearts and our thoughts, that we would not be distracted, but that we might be enthralled in the truths that are found in your word, that we might have our eyes cast totally upon you. And Lord, there are many things in our world that could distract us. We think of our our leaders and the political situations around the world, and we just ask that for our, our leaders, our leaders in government at every level, from municipal on up to federal, Lord, we just ask that you would give them wisdom to rule rightly, that they might see your truth, that they might know your truth, that they might come to trust in you, and that the decisions and the policies they make might be worthy of one who is called to that position, for you have placed them there. We know from your word that you are the one who places the rulers of this world, and we just ask that you would give us the grace to trust you in that, and that we might give honor to our leaders as we are able. And when our leaders make decisions that contradict your word, that we would have the courage to speak out against it and to remain faithful to what you have told us to do in your word. God, it is a blessing to gather as your people. It is a blessing to spend time in your word. And we are incredibly grateful that you have made yourself known to us that we might worship you, not just on this Lord's day, but every day. Lord, we commit this service to you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel, for plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. That's how our passage ended last week, a taunt against the great and mighty Assyrians. Whatever you have, whatever might you think you can amass, go for it. Amass every soldier, every battlement you can, for the scatterer has come up against you, and he will restore his people. 
And he will make a complete end, erasing any sign of you from existence. The Lord has been introduced in Nahum. His promise, his threat has been made. And now through Nahum, God gives some form to the menacing words that they have been hearing so far. The good old do it or else only works if there's a good enough or else. Nineveh is not being given a chance at this point to repent. They received that opportunity a century before at the words of Jonah. According to his great mercy, the Lord saw Nineveh's repentance and he turned from the judgment that he had prepared for the Ninevites. The or else that is coming in here this morning, like all of Nahum, is more for the benefit of God's people and Judah. And it makes clear to Nineveh the severity of what is coming and the reasons for their judgment. There will likely be situations in our lives where we're faced with an awe-inspiring fear, an all-consuming dread of what we know is to come. And the reality is, oftentimes, this thing that we dread isn't quite as big and scary as our mind makes it up to be. It's not quite as terrible as we had imagined. I think of our, our time in our childhood and our parents or our teachers or our coaches they tell us that what we're, what we're worried about, what we're freaking out about, isn't quite as bad as we have made it out to be. But until we make the speech or play the performance or get in the game, we stay just paralyzed with this fear, only to find out on the other side, hey, that, that wasn't so bad. I did it. The, the specters that we had conjured up were worse than the actual things that we feared. But God makes clear in Nahum that this is not the case. There is no understating the gravity of the destruction that is about to come against Nineveh and the Assyrians. This isn't a situation where they'll hit the other side of it and go, well, that wasn't so bad. This is a, they won't make it to the other side of it because there will be nothing left. And to make this clear, he starts by describing the battle that he had so tauntingly told the Assyrians that they should prepare for. Our passage today is Nineveh chapter 2, and we'll start in verse 3, and we'll run through to verse 11. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten up to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or the wealth of all precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. 
this is God's work. This is not a feel-good word for the people of Nineveh. You may remember that after his ordeal in the whale, Jonah was once again commanded to go to Nineveh. In Jonah 3, it recorded, Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. That three days' journey has caused some problem to people who have read Jonah and go, city that is three days' journey in breadth. A healthy person, not me, but maybe someone who walks a lot, a healthy person can walk approximately 60 miles in three days. That is a long distance, and that is a humongous city. So what is this three days' journey in breadth? And the consensus is that at the height of its power, Nineveh had become something of a metropolis. Think of it kind of like the GTA, the greater Toronto area, which includes several respectably large cities, Brampton Brampton and Mississauga. Um, Greater Nineveh, where Nineveh itself was only about seven or eight miles around, contained the cities of Rehoboth-Ur, Kala, and Reason, which are all mentioned in Genesis 10. So, all of a sudden, the, the 60 miles starts to make sense when their huge Nineveh and three other smaller cities at, that surrounded it. And I mention this to give some form to what we read in the first five verses of our passage this morning. These verses describe the advance of God's avenging army. This army, as yet unidentified, but they're advancing upon Nineveh. There's talk of chariots flashing back and forth through the squares, racing through the streets. This makes sense if we remember there are three smaller cities surrounding Nineveh, and these are notable cities. They're big cities, but nothing quite like Nineveh. And these cities would have fallen first before the armies reached the walls of Nineveh proper. As I read these words, I see a vast army approaching Nineveh, not with trepidation and caution, but in an absolute frenzy for battle. These are not men who are scared of big bad Nineveh and the big bad Assyrians. Verse 5 says, he remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. And there's some confusion as to what this verse is referencing But when it's grounded in the fact that all of this is talking about the approaching army, this huge army that's coming up against Nineveh, it becomes a picture of men chomping at the bit so much that they are just running off their feet towards Nineveh and towards the walls, so much so that they stumble in their haste. I want you to try and picture an army of scarlet-clad spearmen and chariots charging through the outskirts of Nineveh, running roughshod over these cities, totally uncontested. They charge up on the walls of Nineveh. These walls of Nineveh were something of a wonder. They were an enormous 70 to 80 feet high. 
and 50 feet thick, and that was the main wall. And there was a secondary wall that ran around the outside of it with towers every 50 feet. 18 gates surrounded the city. Much of the city was even protected by moats and rivers. You remember when the Israelites were coming up on Jericho? How these defenses were so large and how the walls of Jericho loomed over them and gave them such pause? The walls of Nineveh were at least double the height of those of Jericho. But there's none of the same pause that the Israelites experienced. There's no worry about the city of Nineveh. Even with these walls looming so large and defenses that must have seemed impenetrable, the entirety of the conquest of Nineveh is reduced to this in verse 6. The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. We'll get more into the importance of those river gates later in chapter 3. But for now, just remember the promise that was made in chapter 1, verse 8. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversary. The rivers that surrounded Nineveh seem to have been their downfall. They would have lent to the strength of Nineveh. But it seems that dams were opened and floods brought destruction. We know that oftentimes ancient sieges could last for years, particularly of any large city like this before one party or the other finally gave in. But from history, we know that the siege of Nineveh lasted just a paltry three months. The first point I want to draw out this morning is that we see absolutely no resistance. Instead, we see the absolute futility of resistance against the oncoming judgment of the Lord. His will shall be done. From our viewpoint in history, we know that it was an alliance led by the Babylonians that ultimately came to destroy Nineveh. And much of the book of Isaiah deals with God's similar judgment upon Babylon. And in Isaiah 45, we read a promise that from there on out would echo throughout history, and many of us would know quite well. It comes in the middle of this passage. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. And here it is. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who are incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. That central promise, to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. It's quoted in Romans 14 and in Philippians chapter 2. And wrapped up in that promise is again a beautiful comfort for God's people and a terrifying promise for his enemies. Whatever we will, whatever the world's purposes and inclinations, ultimately 
It is the will of the Lord that will be accomplished. Why do we hear nothing of Nineveh's defense? We know there was one. It's because in comparison with the overwhelming certainty of God's sovereign determination to make a complete end of Nineveh, there was nothing to be done. There was no defense that would have made a difference. It's God that is on display here. Not the Babylonians, not the Assyrians. It is God that is accomplishing these things. And he is doing so in such a way that there is no resistance to be made. The second thing I want to recognize is that there is no indication of mercy. Verses 6 to 9 describe the sacking of Nineveh. The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off. Her slave girls lamenting and moaning like doves beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. There's an obvious and maybe slightly less obvious thing going on here. Most obviously, Nineveh is being personified here, that she, her people, are being carried out of the city, even as the Assyrians had done to so many cities in the past. But on another level, verse 7 talks about her mistress being stripped and carried off, her slave girl's mourning. This is likely referring to the Assyrian deity Ishtar and her temple concubines. It was a regular occurrence that when a conquering army would sweep through a city, they would take down the deity, the statue, the idol of that city and paraded out of the city showing the superiority over whatever this deity might be. And quite regularly, the Assyrians would do this. They would show off and say, there was nothing your God could do to stop us. And here, the moaning that should have been done and had been done by Nineveh when they'd received God's words in the past, when Jonah had come to them, there was a great outcry and Nineveh turned for some hundred years. And now all that are left to moan and to cry are the temple concubines as they watch their goddess be paraded out of the city with no great respect. And it strikes me in light of God's promise in chapter 1, verse 14. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. And from the house of your gods I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave for you are vile. Again, the defeat of Nineveh was to be so total that even their gods would be destroyed and forgotten. As Nahum is a sequel to Jonah, we know that that great cry went up from Nineveh, from the greatest to the least of them, when Jonah had come. But this cry and the subsequent reform were short-lived. This warning now is final. There is no hope. When we read that promise from Isaiah that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that God is Lord, we usually do so with a joyous tone. We celebrate the Almighty and the universal kingship of our Lord and Savior. 
Every husband wants, to, wants the world to know how amazing his wife is. We all want to shout it from the rooftops. Parents want to tell everyone how amazing their kids are and about their successes. And it's because it is a good thing. It's something we want to shout and we want to celebrate. And for us, we want to shout and we want to celebrate the greatness of our King Jesus. But the tone here in this passage is twofold. Our Savior is so great and awesome and mighty that he deserves to have his praises shouted from the mountaintops. But when every knee bows and every tongue confesses Jesus as Lord, the sheep of his pasture will do so to the eternal inheritance that was prepared for them before creation. The goats, however, those who have rejected Christ's lordship, they denied it until the last moment when the proof of it is standing before their eyes. And they will indeed confess that Jesus is Lord and Savior, but they will do so to their condemnation, for he is not their Lord. He was not their Savior. And they will do so to their condemnation, being sentenced to judgment for their refusal. Throughout the Old Testament, whenever we see these great and decisive battles where we see God coming to vindicate his people and dispense righteous judgment upon the wicked, we absolutely should be reminded of the promise of a coming final day of vindication and of judgment. And whether this comes as good news or as terrifying news depends entirely upon whose camp it is in which you stand. I absolutely love the imagery we get in verse 8. It says, Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Have any of you ever had a moment where maybe you have knocked a cup or slipped on some ice and there's this moment of clarity where you know what is about to come but it hasn't quite happened yet? There's nothing you can do to stop it. You see the cup falling. You feel your balance is lost and you know where, where this is going. I remember I went bungee jumping in New Zealand and I saw a girl hit that point. Her balance was lost. She was strapped up and ready to do her jump. And at that moment, she decided she didn't want to jump anymore. She turned as she fell and tried to reach for something or anything that she could catch a hold of to pull herself back up. But the tipping point had been reached, and she only had a long fall left for her to contemplate her mistake. Nineveh had received a warning that it was approaching a tipping point. And when I went bungee jumping, there was signs and videos and safety berries everywhere letting a person know what they were getting into. They even made very clear to us a warning that once we passed this certain point, we had paid for this bungee jump, and whether or not we jumped, that money is spent. So you'd better jump. Nineveh had past its precipice. They could cry, they could try to claw back what they had, but it was like water slipping through their fingers. The gold and silver they, they had hoarded from so many nations, including from the people of Israel and the people of Judah, that was now about to be plundered without mercy. 
their goddess was carried away, and even the great palace of Nineveh, which was an absolute wonder to behold, it was just to melt away. These walls that were 80 feet tall and just beyond destruction were to be utterly reduced to rubble. So much so that it was only in the last century or so that we really even found where Nineveh was. And they have been able to cobble together what it looks like and confirm so many of these details that we find in Scripture. But it took a long time for us to even figure out where it was. What's the meaning of this for us today? Last week we heard Nahum proclaim, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. This refrain was taken back up by Paul in Romans 10 when he said, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, The Lord who has believed what he has heard from us, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. My encouragement to us this morning, to those who are listening online, is that while we still have breath in our lungs and life in our bones, that last moment of no turning back has not been reached. No one, not even the people of Nineveh, were beyond the reach of God's saving grace. He is patient and he is kind. We're told in Scripture that he even has delayed his judgment to allow his people to come unto himself. And that is good news. So the judgment has not yet been cast. We have not yet reached that point of no return. But none of us are guaranteed tomorrow. Each one of us could leave from here this morning and not make it home. Those of us who are listening online, you might not get another chance to sit in the pews of a church. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. Either our lifespan will come to an end or Jesus could return before I'm done this sermon. And we are not guaranteed that extra moment. So yes, it is good news that We have not yet passed that point of no return. But that moment is coming, and we need to have settled our faith in Christ in the meantime. When we are confronted face-to-face with the reality of Jesus' lordship, we will either do so and be proven correct in the faith we held, or proven terribly wrong in our hardness of heart. Judgment had been proclaimed in Nineveh. We all know John 3.16. We love that verse, but John 3.18 says that whoever believes in the Son is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That leads me to the final verse of our passage this morning. Nahum 2.10. Desolate. Desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. 
all faces grow pale. Facing God as his enemy, there is no resistance to be made, there is no mercy to be shown, and there is no hope. Like we have said, Nineveh has been convicted of its sins and its judgment has been handed down and Nineveh is to be utterly destroyed. Even though Nineveh at the time of Nahum's prophecy still stood, their might was still on display for all to see, their situation was already hopeless for God had pronounced his guilty verdict. The idea that God would so utterly destroy a nation is difficult to understand. Many even write it off as just an Old Testament thing. But then, or today, to live as an enemy of God is of incredible seriousness and will incur incredible punishment. It's obviously an uncomfortable element of our faith to talk about judgment and punishment. The wrath of God is a rightly terrifying thing, and as mankind so often has done, it is often easier to just avoid rather than confront the truth. Even Adam and Eve at the very beginning in their garden, the response was to hide from the Lord, to make clothes to hide their shame. But that does nothing to help a person. Jonah discovered very quickly how easy it is to hide from the wrath of God. The good news of the gospel is sweetened for his people if we understand what it is that we have been saved from. The book of Revelation tells us that there will be a great judgment at the end of all things, where every single one of us will stand before the Lord to be judged and at those, that judgment, those who have placed their faith in Christ will find their hope fulfilled and they will be re- rewarded according to their actions. And at that judgment, those who have rejected Christ will see whatever hope they have left melt away like water through their fingers. Even as the Ninevites saw their own city melt away, the source of their hope and their pride just melted away before them. We do not know, us individually, we do not know whom God has redeemed and whom God has condemned. I cannot say definitively that you are saved or you are not saved. Your actions give me a good idea of the leaning, but I cannot say with authority one way or another. That's for God to judge. The knowledge that there are those who are even now living without hope or even misguided hope in something other than the work of Jesus Christ that was accomplished through his perfect life and his sinner's death and his glorious resurrection and his glorification and even now his ministry from the right hand of God the Father. That idea that there's those who do not know that hope, who even now are living in darkness, living in Nineveh as it were, That knowledge should drive us to proclaim the only source of hope available to mankind. Like Paul said, how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? Because if they do not know and believe the truth, then all that is left is desolation and ruin. 
a fearful expectation of the judgment that is to come. So if you're here or if you're with us online and you have not yet committed your life to Christ, if you have not yet bowed the knee before him, if you have not yet confessed Christ as the Lord of your life, then now is the time to do so while there is still hope. And for those of us who have confessed Christ, we must be those who bear the good news out from here, and we can be incredibly encouraged at how God has saved us. Remember that this letter is a message of hope to God's people in the time that God was coming to save his people. And even in the bitter throes of Nineveh's destruction, we can be encouraged in God's goodness towards his people. I think of the story of Rahab in the walls of Jericho. Her faith and the relief that she must have felt having been snatched from the flames, as it were, as Jericho fell to the Israelites. As those walls came crumbling down, how Rahab must have just been absolutely floored at the fact that God would save her. We should be amazed that God has saved us. We have been snatched from destruction. We have been granted the gift of faith through our Lord. All of these woes and these punishments being announced against Nineveh, they pale in comparison to what we ourselves deserved before we had been saved through Christ. Brothers and sisters, facing God as his enemy, there is no resistance to be made. There is no mercy to be shown. There is no hope to be found. We do not want to be found to be God's enemy when it comes time for that judgment. There is nothing to get you out of that except Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. So we do not want to be found facing God as His enemy. But standing before God upon the finished work of Christ, there is no resistance necessary. The work has been done. There is mercy. There is undeserved favor and life everlasting. Our hope is in Christ and in an eternal blessed rest to know Him and glorify Him forever. So I hope as we continue through Nahum, as we read of the judgments that are going to be inflicted upon them, I hope that we will be encouraged and comforted by the greatness and power and justice of our Lord. And I truly hope that this lights a fire in us to drive us to declare his gospel wherever we go, that some might be saved as they hear the good news and respond to it by the work of the Holy Spirit. If you can hear of this judgment that is falling upon Nineveh, knowing that the judgment that is to come is far greater and more terrible than we could imagine, and not be motivated by your love for your fellow bearers of the image of God to at least tell them of the hope that you have, I'll pray for you because I, I can't imagine not being motivated 
seeing what is to come. So let's go from here encouraged by what God has done for us and motivated to share it that he might also do it for the people who would hear his gospel, whom he has chosen from before the beginning of the world. Let's pray. Our God and our Heavenly Father, you are God of justice and holiness. Your wrath is terrible to behold and uncomfortable for us to even read of and picture. So Lord, we thank you that you have made a way, that you have provided a path to be reconciled back to you. We thank you that you have given us the gift of salvation, that we might know you through your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, if there are any here or joining with us online who do not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, who have not lived in such a way that they do know him, we ask that you would save them and that you would reveal to them the incredible seriousness of what they are toying with. That your justice and your holiness and your wrath should not be something to be spurned, but that that should motivate them to cling tightly, to work out their salvation. Not that they are saved through works, but they are saved by a gift from you. But the way we live should be a direct result of what we have been saved from and what you have done. So Lord, work on that in our hearts. Lord, we pray corporately for forgiveness the times where we have shied away from sharing this truth, both the uncomfortable parts and the joyful parts. And we ask that you would give us boldness to declare that to the people that we have the opportunity to do so with. And Lord, we pray that not one of us would take for granted for a moment the great work that you have done in us and for us through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray that in all of these things that you would be glorified. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And now as we close here, a benediction in our charge from Deuteronomy chapter 10. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear. He is your praise and he is your God. Amen.